So now what I want to do is a few experiments. So I want to start adding some other dimensions to our practice. And this is, again, everything's very tricky because in the end, the practice is to have no problem and to have no preference. And that alone doesn't quite... So f from one point of view, that alone covers everything. And really, all we need to do is sit here and have no problem and no preference. And then, you know, let the universe have its way with us, and then we'll be fine. Uh, but it also seems that there are ways that we can practice that enhance our capacity to actually have no problem and no preference. But all of those ways can also become a hindrance. That's the problem with everything, is the more potential it has to help, the more potential it has to hinder. So everything's risky. So we want to do some short experiments. And so what we're going to do is first, one thing you, you may like is these are going to be really short. We're going to do just two minutes where I'm going to ask you to be perfectly still. And I, don't, and I mean perfectly still, inner and outer. So for two minutes, you just, to the best of your ability, you won't move a muscle. And you won't let your attention wander anywhere. Wherever it starts, you just keep it there the whole time. You can breathe, but breathe very lightly. Breathe in a way that's not going to dis disturb the stillness. And it's only a short time, so I won't use the bell. I'll just say when to begin. So please begin.
Okay, that's great. Thank you. Because what's, what's interesting is we're often very identified with thoughts. So thoughts move around. And so, so this, is, this, is my, this is your inner eye. It's pretty good if you imagine like a little round thing. So this is your inner eye, and it, it's looking, and it's got a thought, and it tends to move with the thought. That's how it feels. And so we feel like we're always moving around inside. But this way, you could be, you can have your inner eye very still, but still thoughts move around. And so there's always some thought moving in or out from wherever your inner eye happens to be pointed. So you can't really stop the motion. But that's the, that's the benefit of this kind of exercise, is you start to realize what's you that you can stop and what's not you that you can't stop. You can't stop the thoughts. Thoughts come and go. And you're not really in control. But there's your inner awareness, you can actually get quite good at not moving it, no matter how much else is going on. And that's in and of itself not, I mean, that's an inner skill, which is, can be valuable, and it can really enhance your meditation. It's not the goal, but it's, it's something you develop with, with a lot of practice. Because you're not fixated on thoughts, you're just resting, you're yeah. just waiting. And then you start to feel like, ooh, something could pick me up, which it will eventually. Yeah. <laughs> it's an image I used to, um, that had come to me a lot in meditation at one time, was just waiting. Like meditation is waiting to be moved. And picture a big cathedral, a little bit like the one here. I would picture that I was meditating on the steps, and I really wanted to go inside. But I knew if I walked inside, it wouldn't count. I had to be invited. I had to be carried in, so I'd have to wait and wait. Sometimes you'd have to just wait for what seemed like forever, and you never got invited. You get angry because no one's inviting you, and why am I stuck out here? And then you start thinking, maybe I can sneak in. <laughs> maybe I can kind of like sit and just lean back and open the door and then sort of shimmy over <laughs> while I'm still cross-legged so nobody notices. <laughs> but you kind of know if you sneak in, it's not, it's not really going to work. So you have to wait. And if you wait long enough, eventually you feel yourself get picked up. And then the door opens and you get carried in and you get placed somewhere. And then you go, ooh, I'm in. And then you see the altar. It's got all incredible things, and you want to get up there, but you can't walk. You have to wait. Then eventually something picks you up, brings you a little closer, puts you down. Ooh, I'm a little closer. And that's how my meditations tend to go. You keep getting closer and closer. And, you know, it's every step, and you keep earning the right to be brought closer by waiting, by showing that you're patient and that, you can, that you're ready to wait forever. The divine wants us as much as we want her or him. Maybe more. Probably more. <laughs> Has anyone ever done lucid dreaming? So this is the kind of dreaming where you are awake in your dreams. And it's the same principle applies. So a lucid dream is awesome. I haven't really had them for a while. <laughs> Once I started meditating a lot, I stopped having them. 
But it's the same principle. That we, lucid dream, you, it would be like we're sitting here, and let's say in that empty chair my mother was sitting, because she would never come to a meditation retreat. So I'd be sitting here, and I'd be, you know, just be a normal teaching, and then I'd, my mother's here. That's weird. This isn't a real teaching. This is a dream. <laughs> and then I would realize that this is a dream, because my mother would never come to a meditation retreat. And, and then, then you go, this is amazing. It feels so real. <laughs> but if you get too into that, then you wake yourself up. It's this trick. You have to stay enough in the dream so you stay asleep. But you don't want to go too in the dream because then you fall totally back asleep. And then right. you just wake up later and go, oh, I blew it. But if you get too into exploring the dream, then eventually you kind of wake up in bed and go, ah, oh, I blew it. So the same way, like there's a perfect sweet spot that if you find it, Things just keep opening and opening. You, know, you keep falling through every next thing. And then you, there's a great image I like, which is um, underwater lava flows. And the, the lava, the red lava, kind of bubbles up from the ground, and it's liquid. And it goes, and then it slowly turns dark as it cools, and then it gets hard. And then it's stuck, and then it starts to shake. And then it goes, and then the next blob comes out. And that's kind of how your meditation goes. You just, and you sort of get stuck at the next level. And if you just are patient, you go into the next level. And then the next. And then you go, oh my God, this is unending. And I'll just, I can just keep going into more and more depths forever. Right. And in fact, you want to be still and relaxed. You, know, you can be still and relaxed. And, and you can be still and tense. And still and tense isn't quite the right kind of still. When you discover the place where you can be perfectly relaxed and perfectly still, you really you find a beautiful sweet spot. It's a place that's sort of not here and not there. It's exactly in this magical space, perfectly between all possibilities. And that's where all the magic happens. So I want to do another one of those stillness practices. We'll do two minutes completely relaxed and completely still at the same time. Okay, you can begin.
Okay, that's great. I want to do one other exercise. I'm going to build on that one. So that one we were still and relaxed. And this time we're going to continue to be still and relaxed. But we're going to add something a little bit more mysterious, tricky. We're going to be still and relaxed, and we're going to place our attention on nothing. So that means we're going to put our attention on not on any thought and not on any feeling and not on any sensation. We're going to place it on the completely empty space that all the thoughts and feelings and sensations arise in. So before we do that for two minutes, let's just do a couple of practice rounds to see if we can find that place. The way I experience it, it's like defocusing my inner eye. You know, so my inner eye is focused on something and then I just shoo, I just kind of let it relax. And so the, the focus comes off of anything and it's sort of in this nothingness. And then things will try and encroach, but I just keep defocusing. So just do the best you can with it. This, this is not a science and I can only explain to you how these things appear to me. But just try it a few times. Just try to find something that feels like nothing. Okay, good. So we're going to try two minutes of nothing. And we're still always in the practice of no problem, so be easy with everything that happens. And you can begin.
Okay. Thank you. In that space, even if it's a nanosecond, you have the sense of eternity, right? It doesn't matter how fleeting it is. It's like, whoa, that space is way more interesting than all the thoughts. <laughs> uh, when I was a kid, this is true, I used to lock myself in my father's car because I was about seven or eight, and I was convinced that if I followed one thought to the end, there would be a gap before the next one started and I could slip through. And I would just sit in there and keep my... I only recently mentioned this to my father about six months ago. And he goes, I always still wonder what you were doing in there. <laughs> Your mother and I were warned. We thought you were depressed. <laughs> but I was trying, because I thought I was trapped. So I was trying to slip through the crack. But unfortunately, what I found was the thoughts tended to blur together. So there wasn't actually much of a gap. The more that you have a sense of the nothing, it's not like other thoughts and feelings. It's vast and it's infinite, even if it's tiny. And that's the thing you start to get more and more compelled by. How much of that is there? How can I get more in there? How can I put my attention more and more on that versus all the other stuff that's going on? What I'm trying to share with you involves a few inner attitudes and holding those inner attitudes and a few qualities of consciousness that we'll explore together. So the qualities of consciousness that we've explored so far is no problem, which is in some ways the most important and the most primary. Because until we can release our fixation on trying to solve our problem, we're not really available for anything else. And as long as we're very embedded in the sense that there's something wrong, anything we do get introduced to is simply going to be put, placed in service of solving our problem. And it's my contention, at least, that the first step toward liberation is releasing the idea that, that there's something wrong in the first place, and then exploring the far reaches of what might be right with being alive. So that's the first one. Then did a few exercises in stillness. And, and by stillness, we meant relaxed stillness, not tense stillness. <laughs> and emptiness, which we spoke about more in terms of placing your attention on nothing. But I think it could just as easily be described in terms of emptiness. And we'll add it. We'll add two more to that list. I realize that we're also working with inner attitudes. So the first one we spoke about was trust, which is a kind of release of suspicion, a release of fear, an assumption that life is trustworthy. The second one we spoke about was ease, allowing this to be as easy as it is, not not being unnecessarily attached to struggle, which, you know, it's very interesting culturally how attached we, we are to struggle, the idea that hard work pays off and things that come easy can't really be that valuable. Even though the Beatles tell us that the best things in life are free, we have conflicting messages in that domain. 
And particularly in the kind of Western Christian world, there's a big ethic around hard work and struggle. And there are many domains in which it's true that hard work and struggle and, and even pain, the right kind of pain, are what it takes in order to achieve things. But in the realm of spirituality, especially when, when we're talking about the attainment of more uh, peaceful states of consciousness, struggle's not really helpful. The only struggle that's helpful is whatever struggle it takes you to be easy, uh, which in the end is no, it should be no effort at all, but because of the way we are made up, it feels like effort. It's, it's a kind of non-effort effort that we have to make. It's like anything else. If you get into the habit of something, if it takes effort to break the habit. So if, if our habit is clenching and someone says, stop clenching, it may feel like it takes effort to stop clenching. But of course, not clenching is non-effort. The, the, the effort is the clenching. It's just the habit of making effort is so strong that it feels effortful to stop until you do. And then you realize, wow, this is a lot easier than what I was doing. I've, I've been holding this fist so tight the whole time, thinking that that's... And that's what ends up happening is, is our habits of holding on are so deep and so unconscious that we don't see them as something we're doing. We just think this is how life feels. Life feels like a tight fist. And so you, this feels like doing nothing because, and then relaxing feels like you're, you're relaxing as if that's a something you're doing against the reality that life is tight. Until you really relax and realize that life isn't tight, it's actually quite loose. And, and the tightness was the constriction that you were placing on it. So trust and ease. And today I want the background for our practice to be generosity. And generosity is one of the great English words. Generosity in English, another form of generosity is generative, which means creating. It means making stuff. You know, if, some, if someone is generative, it means there was nothing and then they were generating. So generosity is the quality of being able to do that. It's the quality of being able to make stuff, to give stuff. Our practice gets incredibly energized by generosity. This was the amazing realization that Bill W., one of the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, made. After years of struggling with AA, feeling that he definitely knew he had the right tools for people to use, he found people just couldn't stick with it. I can't remember his partner's name. You know, he kept also not being able to stick with it. And at some point, they made a vow that they would do it for each other. And they said, you know, I'm going to stay sober because I know if I stay sober, it'll help you stay sober. And then the other said, I'm going to do the same thing for you. And then they could do it. And that was the, this is why they had all the sponsorship, because all of a sudden they realized, oh, people don't care enough about themselves <laughs> to, to, to stop, but they care enough about somebody else to make it work, which is why in Tibetan Buddhism there's so much 
compassion meditations because it, it evokes the best part of us when we, when we consciously care about uh, other people. So that's really what I, I want that to be the spirit. So just like trust is part of the background that allows miracles to happen and ease is part of the background that allows miracles to happen. So is generosity. And I use the term generosity where I could easily use compassion. But I feel like compassion is a word that we have a lot of ideas around and is used a lot in other contexts. So generosity feels more available. So if at any point in your meditation it feels challenging or you feel like you're sleeping, just think, you know what, I'm going to stay awake for somebody else. <laughs> for myself, I don't care enough. But, <laughs> you know, what if, what if, because I believe it's also true, when we're meditating together, each of our meditations is affecting everybody's meditation. We're not just doing this on our own. The more qualities of being that we bring to our own practice, the more qualities of being that we're bringing to the room. And I often tell people that we should use each other in a positive sense. I know that sounds bad, but, uh, and we should support each other. And it's uh, a good metaphor for life anyway, that we can, we can give and we can receive. And the more you're open to that, the more you will feel the reality of the fact that we're all meditating together. And that ultimately, there's only one meditation happening. We're all getting just a different view of the same meditation that's occurring between us. So generosity will be the kind of background theme. And then there's two other qualities we're going to want to practice. But I want to ease into them by going, we did stillness a minute ago. And now I want to do one more emptiness, so one more put your attention on nothing practice, which we'll do for just a, a minute or two. And again, one way you can think about this is, is our attention comes to a focal point, just like the light that comes through a lens comes to a focal point. And our very strong habit is to always make sure the focal point of our attention is on something. Is in, and what I'm asking you to do is to, if this is a thought and this is you know, the source of your awareness, rather than bringing your attention to a focal point right on the thought, let the focal point be in between you and the thought, in the space, or beyond the thought, out here. And, and what that usually means is the thought gets a little blurry, just like light, just like if you were looking through a lens at something and, and didn't focus it properly. Except I'm saying focusing it properly is when the things are blurry and our attention is on the infinity in between. So let's take a minute and just put our attention on nothing. I'll ring the bell this time, even though there's a lot of bells going on.
Okay, so that's emptiness. So we start with no problem, which means letting go of the sense that there's something wrong. That's what makes us available. You know, we're now not wrapped up in trying to solve a problem. And then we start to discover what it means to be still, really still. When I was a kid, I grew up near uh, some woods that had a pond in it. And so most of my career as a child was spent going to the pond. Every morning I'd say, Mom, can I go to the pond? Yeah, don't get wet. Mom, can I go to the pond? So every day it was go to the pond. And some days, so I had a real intimate relationship with the pond because I see the pond every day. It was about 50 meters wide. It wasn't very big. But some days, the water seemed impossibly still. And I just remember sitting on the side and looking. It was, it was like perfect glass. And I would look to see if I could find a ripple. And you couldn't find any ripples. And I think that's a great analogy for stillness. You know, the surface of a pond that's completely still. And what's even a better analogy is if you imagine yourself in the water, like right up to your eyeballs, just standing. And, and you're looking out at the surface. Now, if, if you move at all, then there's going to be ripples, right? So can you get so still that there's not a ripple? Literally, nothing ripples. And metaphorically, if you can do that in meditation, what happens is you get so still, there's no ripples, which means there's no evidence that you're there. And you cease to know if you're there or not. Because so you know you're in the water, but there's no ripples. So you're not 100% sure you're there. It's like you start to disappear. Because we only know that we're here through the evidence that we get. And most of that evidence has to do with the fact that we're moving things around. So if we stop moving anything around, it becomes more difficult to know if you're there or not. So stillness is a way of starting to disappear. Being very still means you're starting to not leave a trace. And then emptiness allows us to lose track of things. We're incredibly trained to keep track of everything. And by putting our attention in emptiness, we start to lose track. We lose track of what's there. You know, so then not only are we beginning to disappear, but everything else is also starting to disappear because we're not looking at it anymore. So the next one that I want to share with you has to do with another way that we're always keeping track, which is we keep track in time. So one of the things that I want you to really work on is what we'll call timelessness. So best way to work with that in the context of meditation is to do everything you can to have no idea how much time has gone by. So here's a, like, we can all admit, when you're meditating, isn't there quite a bit of your attention trying to determine how much time has gone by? <laughs> it's kind of amazing, actually. It's, it's a completely automatic, we're so well trained at keeping time, you know. You, there's just this constant piece of you, just like there's the, 
There's the navigator who tries to figure out where you are in space. There's another time navigator that's always trying to figure out where you are in time. What time is it? How much time has passed? You know, how long was that? I was lost in thought. How long was I lost in thought? That's, you know, that's the problem. One of the problems with being lost in thought is you never know exactly how long it was. So you have to go back and try and figure out, was that, was that a two-minute trip? Was that a five-minute trip? <laughs> but just like you can consciously put your attention on nothingness, you can consciously put your attention on timelessness, which means you just put your attention on the present and ignore any ideas about how much time has passed. So, you know, this will happen if you meditate for a long time. I'm trying to, as I said, trying to condense experience into a short period of time. So I'm finding hacks to get places that you would naturally get to if you were meditating for a month. But you get to places after you've been meditating for about a month where the meditation begins and then it ends. And you really have no idea how much time that was. It doesn't feel like any amount of time. It just happened. Uh, because when you were meditating, you weren't thinking about time. You were just present to each moment as a moment. And, and in the end, at some point, it just ended. Now, you'll notice that this other trick, there's all so many little tricks you can do with yourself if you want to figure out how you work. If you decide that you're going to meditate for five minutes versus, let's say one day you decide, I'm going to meditate for five minutes. The next day you say, I'm going to meditate for an hour. Guaranteed, in the five minutes, you'll be checking for time a hundred times more often during those five minutes than you will during the first five minutes of the hour. Because the first five minutes of the hour, you know you have an hour, you don't want to drive yourself crazy. So you're not going to start checking until there's at least a half hour gone. But it's really fascinating, because then you can see we're, we're really very consciously doing it, even though a lot of it's happening unconsciously. So you can consciously undo it, which just means don't pay attention to time. Don't know how long it's been. And then you have to sort of discover for yourself how you do that. How do you keep track of time? How do you not keep track of time? It mostly means ignoring the things, the little tracking mechanisms, ignoring the thoughts that go, I think that was about a minute. I think that was about a minute. You know, it feels like 10 minutes now. I just go, I don't know if it's 10 minutes. I, you know, just ignore the time. So we're going to try that. I'm not going to tell you how long, of course, because <laughs> that would really defeat the purpose. But we're going to sit, and we're just going to be, this time, very focused on entering into timelessness.
Okay, thank you. You'll find, as you explore timelessness, that it always, there's variations on the theme, but the theme always is extracting yourself from the experience you're having in the moment so that you can somehow, in whatever way you do it, back up, back out of the experience of the moment so that you can get a sense of, usually, memories, right? And so you're trying to, in some way, you kind of like you're in this moment, say in this moment you're experiencing whatever you're experiencing, and then you go, oh, I wonder what time it is. So you back up. You go, well, I had this experience, then I remember I had that experience, then I had that experience. Oh, yeah, then I had that experience. That's about four minutes worth of experiences. <laughs> and then you go, okay, back in. <laughs> so it's going to be some variation on backing out so that you can try to make an assessment of how many experiences you remember and so that you can figure out basically how much time's gone by. Now, as the time is longer, if we meditate for an hour, it's going to be hard to remember every memory, so you kind of have to amalgamate them. But somehow your brain does that. You pull out and you kind of have some sense of roughly how many... I've had like 30 different memories of experiences, so that's a good so many minutes worth. So, so the reason I tell you that is because then the trick for timelessness is rather than... It's very difficult to not think about time because that makes you think about time. So you can just shift the instruction and say just stay totally present. Just don't let yourself leave the present. Just stay in the experience you're having. Then let that experience naturally. See what usually happens is we're in an experience, that experience shifts to the next one. It's usually at that shifting point that we do a time check. Right? Because when you're in the experience you're just in it and then, then there's this moment where it starts to shift into a new one so you take a minute to pop out, get a, get a quick assessment of time, pop back in. So just don't do the popping out. Just stay totally present through the transition into the next experience. So eventually, your whole meditation, you'll just be in the unfolding of experience from beginning to end. And if you stay that way, you really don't have any idea how much time's gone by because you're just in the experience you're having. And you're losing that kind of meta perspective that's trying to tell you how long it's been. So let's try that again. And again, I'm not going to tell you how much time. You'll notice that I, I usually always try to tell you how much time because I don't want you to have insecurity. Because no, there's no value to meditate on insecurity. This particular meditation is kind of good not to know.
a good way to describe what it's like when you start to lose track. You're just floating and there's no limits. There's no boundaries. It's like being at sea without any measurements telling you where you are. And it can be scary because it can feel like you're out of control and it can be exhilarating because it feels like you're not tied up anymore. So, you know, you get both. You get the scary. And in an atmosphere like this, especially where we're just meditating, it's usually more thrilling than scary because it's very hard for something bad to happen. But still, it can be a little scary at times. You know, it's interesting because there's, there's certain ways in which people talk about unlimited possibility, which takes the concept too far and sort of makes it sound impossible because it sounds like infinite possibility or, some, or something that doesn't totally make sense. But the thing about unlimited possibility is it doesn't mean an enormous amount of possibilities. It just means you don't know what the possibilities are. So you don't have any idea. You don't, there may be only one more possibility for all you, but you just don't. If, as long as you don't know what's possible, then the possibilities are limitless because you just don't know. Now, they may be limited in some other context, but as far as you're concerned, you live in, an un, in, a, in a world of unlimited possibility. And that's one of the great gifts of this kind of practice is you start to realize that you don't know what's possible. You, you know, we're, we're sort of conditioned and trained to think we know what's possible. Many of you have probably heard these distinctions about there's the known and the unknown and the unknown unknown. Have you heard that? It was really popular at one time. The, the known is everything you know and the unknown are all the things you know that you don't know, like if you heard of the city Dayton, Dayton, Ohio, it's kind of a just Midwestern city in America somewhere. I know I don't know the population of Dayton, Ohio. I, I know that there is a population because I know someone from there, but I don't know what the population is. But I also know I could find it out if I wanted to. But the unknown unknowns are the things you don't even know that you don't know. Uh, and they're essentially limitless. How many, how many things do I not know that I not know? I don't know. You, you can't know. And when you start to get into meditation, you want to add one more category, which is the unknowable. You know, how much is there out there that my mind can't actually know in its current form? You really can't know that. <laughs> so you know, we live in an infinite expanse of possibility, and most of our attention is focused on what we already know. So in an experience like that, you have the opportunity to start to viscerally feel unlimited possibility. There's so many ways that we've been trained to think that are valuable in some contexts and not valuable in this one. And one is we've been trained to think of time as a succession of moments. And by when you put your attention actually in the moment, you realize there isn't this moment that then turns into another moment. There's this, this moment. And this moment keeps unfolding, but there's only one of them. And it's been that same one forever and will continue to be that same one forever. So once you put your attention on the present moment, 
your attention is on the only moment there actually is. And that's an amazing feeling. It's like you've landed in reality. You were always here, but you hadn't realized you were completely here in the only moment that actually exists. So we have stillness, emptiness, timelessness, and then one left that I wanted to introduce, which, again, they all lead to the same place. And in the end, you only need one, really, to get you there. Um, some people do better with one than another. Some people do better with a combination. If you continue to practice, you'll kind of find the mix that works best for you, uh, I'm assuming. This one is a particular favorite of mine, selflessness. Not in the sense of generosity that we talked about earlier, but in the sense of not having a self. Um, so what that means in meditation is, so it's, it's building on the timelessness theme. So in timelessness, we're in the experience of the present moment, and then we pop out to kind of get a gauge a sense of how long we've traveled. When we start to think about selflessness, it's something similar. Is we're in the experience of the present moment, then occasionally we pop out to look in the mirror to see how we're doing, and then we pop back in. Um, and so to practice selflessness, we just resist the temptation to look at ourselves. And it takes about 15 seconds for that to get almost overwhelmingly <laughs> difficult, usually, because it's the fastest way to feel like you're losing control if you don't get a chance to look back at yourself to see how you're doing. So this is how it works. You just in whatever experience you're having, it's all great. Oh, this is good. And as soon as you say that, you're looking back at yourself. There's, there's been some kind of, it's any kind of self-assessment is what we're trying to avoid. Any kind of determining whether you're doing it right or doing it wrong. You know, which is always some kind of stepping out of the experience you're having to assess what's happening. Uh, to determine how you're doing so that you can feel secure. And we feel equally secure whether we're doing it right or wrong. We don't tend to mind doing things wrong as long as we know. The thing we can't stand is not knowing if we're doing it right or wrong. <laughs> if we know we're doing it wrong, okay, at least I know I'm doing it wrong. I don't like that, but it's better than not knowing. And if we know we're doing it right, of course, that's good. But if you don't know how you're doing, it gets very uh, insecure. Witnessing is one state of meditation. It's a very valuable one. But it's still dualistic, right? So it's still, anytime there's witnessing, there's, there's a witnesser in that which is witnessed. So when we start to get into the selflessness, we're really starting to enter into the domain that many would call non-duality, where there's just awareness, which some people would define that as witness. So it all depends how you use the term. But the way, that we, the way that I've been thinking about the witness today and the way it's sometimes talked about has more to do with sort of like a meta view of what's happening as opposed to just pure awareness. 
Usually pure awareness is something that's distinct from the witness. But if we talk about a kind of non-dual relationship to your experience, which means losing sense of the self, losing sense of the, of the, basically breaking down, if you want to talk about in terms of breaking down, breaking down the subject-object distinction is what it's really about. So there just is what is. And at some point, you stop even being able to talk about, to use the term, like even awareness, the way that it's defined in the West, awareness tends to imply subject-object, even though it doesn't have to. So we we're just basically want to enter into a non-dual unity with what is. So there just is. And there's nobody meditating anymore. That, that would be the, uh, the idea. Because what, what happens in meditation is you, you almost, well, we all begin meditating as what I like to call a thinking thing. Right? So we all have a very deep sense of ourselves as a thinking thing. I'm a thing that's defined by this body and it thinks. So, you know, I, I live in a world full of things, right? So we live in a world that's in the West that most often is attributed to the French philosopher Descartes, uh, who made a distinction between subject-object and he made a distinction between the outside and the inside. All were very helpful things at the time. All have been demonized since. And, and so I like to say that we live in a world in which the fundamental metaphor that we live inside of is things in space, which is the Newtonian-Cartesian way of seeing, which is that there's three-dimensional space that extends infinitely in all directions. And inside that space, that, that empty space is populated by things. And in the way that we've been trained to think, the things are the, mo are the reality. So if I want to use a word, the word that we use in English that means totality is everything. So the assumption is that if you have all the things, you have all that is. It's because things are real. And so empty space is sort of nothingness, and then there's real things in the empty space. And of all those things, human beings are one of the very special things. In fact, usually we consider ourselves to be the most special thing, which is fair enough, because it's who we are. And one of the things that's very special about us is that we think, that we have a consciousness that is somehow encapsulated in our bodies, generally considered to occur in modern times, in the neurological functioning of the brain. And, and that image is, I don't even know how to, there's no words that describe how deeply embedded in that image we are. Our, our entire experience of reality is shaped by that fundamental image in ways that it's impossible to imagine. So, when we come to, to a practice like meditation, we generally come to it as a thinking thing. In my case, I come to it as a thinking thing named Jeff, who has this particular history and a particular personality and a birthday and et cetera, et cetera. And then I sit down in a particular body that feels a particular way that has its own quirky pains and, and I have my own very quirky mind. It does whatever it does in meditation. I'm very familiar with this thinking thing called Jeff. And from that platform, I then have an experience of meditation 
that at very deep and subtle levels, I assume is kind of emanating from me. And when we start to get into this domain of selflessness, first what I'm going to ask you to do is, is a more mechanical process, which is exactly what, what I was saying earlier, resisting the temptation to do some kind of self-assessment. Because the self-assessing mechanism is one of the main mechanisms through which we continually reinforce the sense of ourselves as a thinking thing that's meditating. So we, first we'll just do that for a while to see if you can test the water there. And then, as we move on, we'll want to experiment with meditating not as yourself, where you don't, you let go of any assumption that you're meditating, that you're a somebody who meditates. And rather, you sit in meditation and just be meditation without any idea of being a somebody who's meditating. And then see what happens. What happens when you let go of any limitation to being a somebody who's meditating? Don't jump ahead just because I told you that's what we're doing. <laughs> we're going to do a, a couple of minutes in which all you're going to do is practice avoiding the temptation to make any self-assessment. And you'll see very quickly that this is quite tricky because you know, you'll avoid making a self-assessment and then you'll say, ooh, I just avoided making a self-assessment, which will be a self-assessment. But anyway, just do the best you can with it and have, you know, as always, the spirit is easeful, fun, joyful, just this is an experiment to learn about how self-assessment occurs in our experience. I'll ring the bell.
the way to make it easier is the same thing with timelessness, which is rather than thinking about resisting the temptation to look at yourself, you can be more directed toward total absorption in the experience of the present. It's the more positive way to look at it. But if you're completely absorbed in raw sensation of the experience you're having, then you won't be self-assessing. It gets deeper and deeper because what you start to realize is this vantage point of being a thinking thing is already sort of pre-embedded into most of the sensations you have. So you're not actually having the sensations as they exist. You're having them as they're being filtered through a thinking thing assumption. And I was noticing while we were sitting for those minutes how as I was sitting, I could feel my arms resting on my legs. It occurred to me that even the experience of my arms resting on my legs is a kind of self-assessment because I wasn't really experiencing my arms resting on my legs. I was really experiencing a whole bunch of individual sensations that I then amalgamate into a story about that's my arms resting on my leg. So if you really take out all the stories from your experience, you're just going to have some undecipherable amount of raw sense data. And in some ways, what we're moving toward is disembedding ourselves from all the stories, even those unconscious stories that are pre-shaping our experience. The German philosopher Immanuel Kant talked about the transcendental unity of apperception, which is a very technical sounding way of saying that we shape reality, that we don't actually experience reality the way it is. We experience the real reality the way our minds shape it. And vast amount of that shaping occurs unconsciously. So it doesn't feel shaped to us. It feels, it feels just at the level of conscious awareness, it just feels like the way things are. Only as you kind of deconstruct the layers of story, like, you know, this is the feeling of my arms resting on my legs. Which isn't, if you really start to deconstruct it, it can be fun. You say, well, what am I really feeling? Arms resting on legs is not a feeling, that's a story. We say, you kind of think, well, I'm feeling my skin on my jeans. Well, skin on jeans is also a story. So that's, you know, a little, at least you've gotten out of the arms on legs, but now you're in skin on jeans. And so you go, well, what, what? And then you really start to deconstruct your, and you start to feel just the sensations. Even if you say, I feel heat, that's another story, because heat is a concept that you put on. So but if you just get right into the sensation, then you really start floating. It's not even like, you can't even say you're floating. There's no floating anymore. There's just this upward swell of sensation, which is actually what we're living in. And what I think is fascinating is that from this upward swell of sensation, we seem to congeal story around it that creates the reality that we experience, which is incredibly useful because being a thinking thing that can engage with other thinking things, I mean, there's so many things that are possible because of this particular configuration of raw sense data. And when we start to see the edges of what's possible, 
in terms of, for instance, our global ecological crisis, you realize, oh, this particular configuration of selfhood, the possibility range of it doesn't seem to extend far enough to take care of those situations. So maybe we need to, you know, not wholesale destroy this. You know, we're not starting at zero, but maybe we can loosen up the edges of this particular configuration and allow some other configuration to start to emerge through us that could extend our possibilities. And to me, that's the whole, so that we can loosen up our attachment to the current configuration of reality enough so that some other possibilities that we don't see yet could start to emerge and we can reconfigure at a more expanded level in a more expanded form. Getting rid of layers of story is a process of not knowing. We know in stories. So if we, for instance, I know that my arms are on my leg. I know that that feeling is skin on jeans. I know that that feeling is heat. Those are all, that's all layers of knowing. So if you remove that knowing, you just end up with raw sensation. All of these layers of story upon story upon story upon story that congeal us into this beautiful configuration that we were born into, you know, we can let go of them by not knowing. So, so one thing that I do besides teach meditation is paint. And, and this will, I think this will help illustrate the point. I was recently putting some paintings together for a, for a show, and I tend to do watercolor abstracts and very spontaneous forms. So they're nicely colored and don't necessarily mean anything. But I had a bunch of them in the house because I was creating them. And my wife and I had this young couple that we know come to dinner. And he's a kind of a graphic artist, more of the comic book variety. And he loved my watercolors. And he said, oh, man, I would love to do something with you. So I gave him two. I said, why don't you draw on top of these? And he made these incredible comic illustrations on top of, so it's like the opposite of what you normally, you start with the black outline, then you color it in. He started with the color and then imagined something to put over the top of it and then drew. And I thought, oh, so now we have a plan. We're going to make a book together. We're going to basically have the same underneath painting on 20 pages and then he could do a different drawing on top of each one, which we'll use to illustrate the fact that reality is this kind of energetic emergence that can be configured in many different ways. And we can get more, you know, I feel like our spiritual work is a way of creatively reconfiguring the energy of life into forms, into different forms. And when we liberate our awareness in the way that we're talking about it, and not knowing is kind of one of the ultimate ways to think about liberating your awareness, we become available for an incredibly profound level of creativity where the medium of the art is the life energy itself, is, is the experience of being alive. And then that experience of being alive can be reconfigured and we can find other forms to organize it. So the not knowing itself is kind of a step, and at least the way I look at it, 
is that that's what liberates our awareness to profound levels of creativity. Not knowing is, I mean, that's an incredible shortcut. I mean, if you want to have the ultimate hack, that's a great one. You just don't know. <laughs> if you can really pull off the not knowing, you're, you're just in, yeah, you don't know. You don't know who's meditating. You don't know if meditation's happening. You don't even know how you would distinguish anything from anything else. It gets, you know, not knowing goes very deep. Because in the end, the way, that, the way that I have experienced the witness dissolving isn't through destruction. It's just you no longer identify with the witness. It just becomes yet another event. So, you know, this happens, and then that happens, and then the other thing happens, and then a witness happens, and then, but it's no longer a special event that I think is somehow meta to everything else. It's just one more thing in the chain of events. And you just keep, you know, it keeps, the witness keeps appearing and passing by just like everything else. And you just, you just ride your, you know, your consciousness train straight through it. There's nothing really about our experience that needs to change except our relationship to it. Because there's things like the witness that we have a special relationship to. So when that one appears, all of a sudden we sort of reconfigure and go, oh, that's me witnessing. Or those voices that are me talking. You know, there can be a, ten voices at a time we can hear, and it's no problem. This voice, then this voice, then this voice, then this voice. But then all of a sudden there's one that's, oh, it's me talking. And it's like you just all of a sudden you're behind the voice instead of in front of it. And you're not hearing it, you're speaking it. So eventually, though, you can learn to not, to even see that move as something that's just happening. You know, even the move of, of going from a voice that's talking to you to being the voice talking is just another experience that happens. So everything becomes just another experience in the chain of experience, and you just fly straight through all of it. Then you just keep going and keep going and keep going, and then you go through layers of not knowing and the longest opportunity for retreat that I had was about 60 days, was exactly 60 days. And I remember writing at about day 45 that I can't believe every day can be as different as the day before when you're not doing anything but sitting there. But it seemed like every day was a completely new miracle on top of all the miracles from the days before. And this was a really... It was an interesting retreat opportunity because it had been set up by my teacher, and he liked to do things. He was a lover of extremes. So it was a retreat that it ended up being 60 days, but we didn't know how long it was going to be while we were on it. He said, I want you on retreat. And we said, OK, how long? I don't know. Well, when will we know it's He said, I'll know when it's over. <laughs> so after, after the, for the first 30 days, I kept thinking, I wonder if it's going to be over today. But then, after 30 days, I thought, oh, I hope it's not over today. <laughs> I hope we can keep going. So that was a, it was a really good way to enter into timelessness. You just didn't know. But anyway, the point is that there's always more unfolding. And eventually, as we're talking about now, you even relax the idea that you're going through an unfolding, and, you, and there's just an unfolding happening. And then everything starts to get very interesting. You stop even knowing if you're having your experience or someone else's experience or who's having, what, who's having this experience, is anybody having this experience. Uh, I remember sitting in that long meditation 
and I was pretty convinced that I could see through everybody's eyes if I tried hard enough because I didn't understand why I couldn't. Didn't make any, it no longer made any sense that I was somehow limited to this body. So I was really trying for a couple of days, like, like to the point of giving myself a headache. And I just thought, you know, there's just some kind of very intense belief about separation that if I could let it go, all of a sudden I'd see every perspective in the room at once. So I kept trying and trying and trying. It never happened, which is probably good because I, I undoubtedly would have ended up in a loony bin or something. But, <laughs> but it's, it's just because you let go so much of everything you know and you enter into this state of unlimited possibility where anything you can imagine, you can't understand why it's not already true. It doesn't, because you're not feeling that there's any limitation at all to what's possible. And it appears that there are limitations, but I think there are many fewer limitations than we think. And, and that's the, the opportunity.